Okay, we're live. All right, welcome back to the annual uh, podcast. Yeah, it has been about a year and a half. It was May 22 when we last chatted, right. and that was like two or three episodes ago because I record like once or twice a year at this point. Well, hey, I'm in law school and doing other things. Life is full, but I'm yes. glad to do this. Speaking of law school, mm-hmm. I just listened back to our episode yesterday. And for anybody who missed it, I recommend it. It was really interesting. It's actually a pretty good conversation. I enjoyed listening to it. And one of the interesting things is we mentioned you were going to run for office last fall. We did not mention your law school plans. Maybe oh, really? they weren't solid in I May I think I had applied at that point. Okay. But uh, yeah, so what happened in your life last year? Did you run for office? I ran for office. I won the seat, which is great. Uh, and I applied to law school and was admitted. Same school you go to. Boom. Must be good. <laughs> and so uh, now I finished. Can you, can I, I can't say I'm done with the first. I can say with, I'm done with You're the too first. You're well in January. The first year of law school. Yeah, but you've not done your first year. The first calendar year of law school, but not the first academic year of law school. Yeah, so law school traditionally is three years. And law school students are called 1Ls, 2Ls, and 3Ls. This program is year-round, but it's part-time. For the, I'm not telling this to Ben. I'm telling I'm this aware. to people listening. <laughs> it's uh, year-round, but part-time. And so the way it works is it's, it's really like a, a year and a third where you finish your normal first year. So as of January, assuming Ben passes his classes, he will be a 2L. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm still I'm in the middle of my 2L. I'm two years in. But I'll be a 3L probably in like January or May, depending mm-hmm. on the number of credits I take. But yeah, uh, so what's something, what's like uh, something you've learned in law school? And I have a couple of thoughts of what like a little bit surprised me. I mean, obviously I was already generally familiar with our legal system, mm-hmm. but wh- what about you? So f- two weeks ago, I said to my wife for the first time, because it was true for the first time, I said, hey, I... Th- I think I'm actually excited about practicing law for the first time because when I, similar to you, Jamie, didn't have any particular aspirations for like, I don't know, passing the bar and practicing law right? uh, in, in, in starting law school and which is probably pretty strange. We've talked about that before. Right. Um, (coughs) But anyway, so it, it, the process has, has kind of stirred up a, an excitement in, in me for, actually being engaged in, in practicing law at some point, specifically in what area? I'm not sure. Um, one thing I didn't really realize and has helped me not be disappointed about certain things is the reality that in many ways, law school is three years of studying for the test. Yeah. It's right. It's like an SAT prep class, but it's a bar prep class. Um, I guess I knew that was true. It, it really is. And I mean, in, at some level, isn't all education that, assuming there's a decent test? <laughs> Meaning if the test actually like examines, are you generally familiar with every area of like law practice? Yes. Then any good training for law practice is training for the test. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I would think. Mm-hmm. Like, well, there's like, <clears throat> I, I was looking forward to a little more and I, I've just finished the first three terms, so it's not like I'm. You are taking like I'm the not basic taking classes. level classes. Yes. I'm not taking any electives, but we haven't really had an interesting conversation about natural law. Correct. And I would, I would, if I were as ignorant as I am, if I were teaching, like, if I was the first professor of law students, I'd want to be like, guys, let's talk about 
Let's talk about this idea. Before we get into the meat and potatoes, just because it kind of sets healthy, I, I think, healthy like pillars in place in understanding. Well, right, but evolution. you actually believe in natural law. I don't think most of our well, professors even you, do. But even if you don't believe in natural law, it it is, it, it you know, I you might not believe that the earth is flat, but you still want to know the history of, you know, astronomy and the importance of Galileo's discoveries. If you're a flat earther, that's still interesting. No, like we still teach it. We still say, Hey, people used to think that oh, there's sure. a flat and, and not, not the earth, I, flat, I but more you. so yeah. that the, you know, what, what the, the universe doesn't revolve around, but the there's earth. definitely, I would say a lack of is like, yeah, it doesn't get into like political theory much. Or even legal theory, it, the, some of the classes, particularly in torts, do reach back to like the history of how things have evolved, mm -hmm. but it's not really getting into the theory. It's super, well, what it is with this, it's, it's, common, it's way more common law than I was anticipating. Mm. And so uh, common law, for those who are not familiar, there are some jurisdictions are civil law jurisdictions, some are common law. Civil law would be like France and Spain, common law is England and basically all the uh, Anglosphere countries that England kind of influenced over the years. And interestingly, in Louisiana, they do not follow British common law, but all the other states do. And what it is is, yeah, we have constitution and we have statutes, but even those, it's largely, you understand what they mean by looking at how judges have ruled on it. Right. And so there's this, uh, if, if there's an assault case, you're not just looking at the statute. You do look at the statute, but you want to look at a dozen assault cases case decisions, decisions and to find analysis. out what are the facts, how is the judge interpreting every word of this statute. And so it's, you might call it judge-made law. And so when you're looking at torts, yeah, you go back over the past couple hundred years or even further, maybe back into like the 1500s in some random cases. And, and you're looking at the evolution of how ju judges have treated this. And, and I would say I was aware that we certainly looked at like precedent, but mm -hmm. I didn't realize like the extent. Essentially, you can't practice law in any area that I've studied yet without just reading a bunch of cases. Like there is never a time where it's like, we'll just look up the statute. Right. Like you need to look up the, the relevant statutes, but you can never stop there. You have to look at the, the cases that cite those statutes. Mm -hmm. I would say that surprised me and it got me thinking, what are the pros and cons of a common law jurisdiction? What are your thoughts? How, how did, have did, you, have you studied civil, civil law jurisdictions at all? Cause I haven't, like, I don't like, even I have haven't, like studied it in a, right. like thoroughly, okay. but as a basic, like rather than judge made law, it's all statute based mm -hmm. judges are still judges, by the way. Although usually the, the they, court they, process is a little different. The judge is more the investigator and right. it doesn't have like the, and they also don't have from what I know, like the sort of sense of the honorable venerated, you know, impartial. Well, I think the judge, judge is almost more like the prosecutor and judge right. together. Well, they're yeah. But it, it, there, there are like a hundred plus countries that are civil law jurisdictions. So I'm sure there is variation. Do you but, still have the sort of adversarial trial process or not in many of them, okay. maybe in some, but, but, but anyway, leave that aside. Cause I'm not that familiar and it doesn't really matter. My question is more, uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that you can't just look up a statute to know what the statute means? Oh, I mean, well, that would be nice. Uh, and this will actually then lead into a brief conversation on originalism and textualism. And then maybe we'll dive into oh, the topic we going? for today. Oh, okay. I mean, this is where we're headed. I didn't get the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like we're talking about common law now. And yeah. Right. I mean, if you, think of, if you think of justice as a pursuit, it makes sense. Uh, whereas we're, we're actually trying to 
we we're like um, if we could write a perfect statute then that's probably the best approach but we understand we we can't okay uh and so what is the what is the uh next best alternative as opposed to saying well there's here's a here's a here's a dictate from whatever the authority is this is it it doesn't change until a new dictate comes out uh that's one approach the common law approach basically says all right let's let's try this in real life situations and see how it see how it is um whether or not it carries out its intended goals and how it interacts with other other norms and laws and uh i remember when i was an undergrad i took a class uh called law and economics it was an econ class it was really just one of the professors he was a jd and (laughs) he just wanted to teach law but he wasn't in a law program so he just did it anyway um and so he yeah he kind of primed the class on this idea of common law um and yeah i mean it's the way i'm not feeling very articulate about it right now um in a sense it's kind of like the free market of justice okay I'm following, or, not really following, I don't know where you're going right, right now, but I'm along for the ride. Right, where so <laughs> in the free market, uh, there's a sense that, or maybe maybe the public square would be a better, you know, descriptor. It's kind of the public square of justice, right? Work with me here. Okay. <laughs> sure, I, I just, I don't know, I honestly don't know where you're going. <laughs> So I have, well, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, I think oh, okay. So I think the common law approach works really well because we have so many different jurisdictions, okay. and it, I think it fits really well with the sort of quote American experiment, right? We have sure. federalism, right? We have all. If you, I mean, what was what was kind of crazy to me, getting and starting in law school, reading all these cases, is you'd read. I didn't realize how important like the circuit was and and right even at the federal level depending on the circuit you're in changes right. what the common law tr- right. precedent is it's a is. different yeah. it's a different law it's a different legal tradition sometimes even in different in different circuits and so sure. especially if a, if an issue hasn't hit the supreme court um, or it's been a narrow ruling at the supreme court it kind of preserves a, a difference of right whether you're in the ninth approach. circuit or the second right and that's okay in our in our american system um i think that uh and what's what's really exciting about it and kind of thinking about the the free market idea or the public square idea we can we can sit down and say well we don't even need to argue the theoretical merits of this idea we can literally go back and look at all right this has actually been the norm in this particular state or this circuit or this even district of this this state and we can understand how has this actually impacted people's lives there Anytime you're writing policy, we, we literally cannot, we can't, we can't anticipate the consequences. Sure. We can't anticipate the byproducts and how, um, you know, the sort of complex interactions of all of these things. And so even if it's something as simple as, I don't know, I don't want to say as simple, but as mechanical as tax law, it, it 
to be able to look into a test bed and understand, not just thinking about it utilitarian, but thinking about as far as what actually, um, what actually uh, results in a just outcome, uh, I, I think we have, it's an advantage to us to look, to have the common law system in sort of a federalist structure uh, and we, we are better for it. Uh, how's that? That works. I have, there's one like, <laughs> you particular aspect of it that I think is, is fascinating. And, and so this, so there's a law that passed. Just take New York State. So that it passes a law about something about fraud. Like, the question is, like, what is fraud and what's the extent of fraud? And, and rather than every time there's a fraud case, wondering how this judge will treat fraud, you can almost, there, there's a stability in common law. Because yes. what you can do is see how New York State judges have treated fraud cases for the past decade. Yeah. And, and it almost, <clears throat> judges don't always do exactly what the previous judge does, but they right. build on it. And so there's, and there's like, a respect for previous decisions. Right. Because you can read a, a sentence in a statute and you're like, man, there's a dozen ways you could nuance this and mm -hmm. apply it to my situation. And so it removes, all, they're, they're adding the common law tradition, I think adds a lot of stability to the law process. It's frustrating. And, and, and I can imagine even now it's kind of annoying because I, I realize now I read a lot and I'm like, but I really don't know what this means until I read a dozen cases, right. which is kind of frustrating. Hey, it, uh, and then you have a dozen cases to read a dozen cases yeah, on. It's job security for lawyers. <laughs> right. But so it's kind of like, what is the point of this? It seems insane. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, although it does require a little extra reading and work, it actually adds a tremendous like stability mm -hmm. because you know that the judge isn't just going to read this statute and hopefully you land in the same place he lands. Yeah. On the whole, he's going to read the statute and all the case law related to it, and he's going to follow that guidance. Right. And so I think it, it adds a lot of stability to the legal context, and like that's a huge win, even though it does include more work. So and that, also, that's one big just one to it. reference back to something yeah. like natural law, which you know, is the concept that there are fundamental truths and things that are just or right and good, and that sort of the process of law is a discovery or an uncovering of those things, right? That's kind of the, right. If, is that sure? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they, it, part it's of, a I mean, discovery process. It's, it's part of God's creation. Part of God's creation. Right. There's, yeah. a, there's a sort of a supreme order. Um, and our, even the declaration of independence is like predicated on natural law. Right. Yeah. But to make exactly to make that point in a common law system, we, even if we don't, even if we don't understand or can articulate those, an idea like natural law, if we're, we're kind of beholden to the, to, to the natural law that's written into previous decisions and right. our, our own constitution. Yeah. And so you don't even need to have or ascribe to some of the, you know, the those um, ideas. Um, like you said, the stability of it is even if we were to sort of, as we have been, I think, departing from a sort of a, uh, common understanding. Of sure, our culture law. is becoming more and more postmodern, but our legal system is still rooted in past legal jurisprudence, exactly. which keeps it rooted in natural law to right. some degree. And even it, it by can shift. It just shifts slowly yes. and carefully. It's a very conservative approach. Yes, uh, lower C conservative. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, and and even so, th that brings up topics Until like start the Supreme Court, and then it can be right. not conservative. But even the the Supreme Court tends to mm -hmm. stick with uh, precedent, and yeah, stare decisis is 
I don't recall exactly what it means. I think it thinks the decision means like stands. let it stand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it if if you're kind of like mm, not totally sure the previous decision was correct, you stick with it. You only overrule when it's like this was really wrong and has like significant implications or something like that. Well, and, and it just adds a stability. What's tough about Supreme Court decisions? It's it's like any top rung of a decision process. The point of it getting to there is it's not clear. It's right. supposedly not clear, and so there there has to be some either departure or, you know, uh, some decision made, uh, and that's nothing's going to get to the Supreme court. And they say, well, yeah, it's obviously X because we all agree it's X. Right. And here's right. all the reasons it's X. I'll do it's crazy is occasionally there are like unanimous, most of them uh, are uh, reversals or something. Oh, true. Which, which is let's, but, but what it is, is often it's with a circuit split. So there was mm -hmm. one circus circuit who had had this, like a certain tradition that evolved over time. Right. Like you referenced this earlier and then another circuit has a different one and they keep getting like further and further apart and the Supreme court will step in. Right. And typically, so along with that, like conservative tendency and different justices have it to a different degree. Um, from as I followed over the past few years, it seems like Roberts is very conservative in his like he tries to make rulings that have like the least amount of potential consequence mm -hmm. uh like just very well, narrow careful he doesn't like to overturn precedent he's a very very he's probably the most conservative jurist in like a being careful manner mm -hmm. if he's if, kind of he's an institutionalist yes yes uh, very much so whereas somebody like Sotomayor or Gorsuch are very not conservative in the like or even Thomas, they're like, if, if it doesn't make sense to them, they're willing to like throw, just upend things. Uh, and I think there's, you know, maybe we, we actually, in our podcast a year and a half ago, talked a little bit about that. Which for the record, down. Jamie listened to yesterday. Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do not remember this from a year and a half ago. Uh, we had a bit of a conversation about the just burn it all down or like incremental, like actually we have a lot here to preserve. Yes. Um, so anywho, uh, but I, I wanted to touch on briefly, because we talked about this a few weeks ago, just in part. Mm -hmm. But so uh, originalism often is summarized as uh, text meaning tradition. Have, have you ever heard that mm -hmm. like phrase? Mm -hmm. And so part of originalism is textualism, but an emphasis on textualism sometimes leads you to different places than an emphasis on like a holistic originalism. Yes. And, and sometimes it can leave questions unanswered. Right. Uh, so, like, for example, I think a really good example is Bostock, where the Bostock decision was, was that 2019? Do you remember what year that was? I'm not just sure. Just about, yeah. Sounds right. It was pre-COVID, I'm pretty sure. But uh, in Bostock, that's when they applied the civil rights case statutes to questions of gender identity and gay marriage like same sex, like homosexual identity. I, I think they applied them to both of those and basically said you can't discriminate on those bases because that's discrimination on the basis of sex. And somebody who leans very heavily into a original meaning is like nobody in the 19, was it 65, 64, 65, when, when those statutes were mm -hmm. passed, nobody was thinking gender identity and homosexual identity. Sure. Uh, 
And I realized homosexual is kind of like a passe term, usually you just say gay, but I think, I don't know what you say. Do you say gay identity? I don't even know the verbiage. It's hard to keep up with terms these days. You're not but, supposed to be able to keep up. That's the exactly. Point. The, uh, but, but like nobody was thinking that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, but, uh, Gorsuch, who I would say for statutes, not the constitution, but for statutes, and in this case, civil rights laws are statutes, leans pretty heavily textualist. Mm-hmm. And, and here's, one of the, here's one of the wins of leaning textualist as a court one of the wins is anybody can read the statute and this is why it's somewhat related to the common law idea rather than having to look through a bunch of decisions of how has this been applied or like what was the original like legislative discussion like right. having to look at the record if you, you have, don't have to be a lawyer have to understand the statute the civil rights and a law. dictionary from that year you can you can divine the intention right, right? and the, so and so gorse just went i would say probably slightly unnecessarily wooden on it but he's like, look, you can't discriminate against somebody for their gender identity or gay identity without considering and discriminating on the basis of sex. Meaning if Joe wants to date Sally and uh, Crystal wants to date Sally, if you only discriminate against Crystal for that right. you're because Crystal's female, you're not discriminating, you're discriminating on, on the dating Sally, you're discriminating on something right. else. What and is it's, it? So it's a little wooden, but the, the basic idea, and, and I actually share this basic impulse, is for constitutional things, lean more into originalism mm-hmm. uh, for I'm a couple sure. of reasons. One is because it's like really hard to amend the Constitution. <laughs> uh, so you ha- end up with this verbiage that's 200 years old, and it's like, look, if you just straight up look at the sentence, it could mean things that have nothing to do with what it really means. Right. And so it's really important to maintain that originalism, whereas for a statute that's on the books that a business is supposed to follow, I don't expect every business owner to be a lawyer, but they should be able to read the civil rights statutes and follow it. And so, I, and if what it says no longer means what Congress wants it to mean, let Congress pass a new law. And so, like, that would be an example where the, the court went, didn't go super common law-y. They almost went more civil law and just like, what's this statute say? Boom. Yep. Now, of course, they're then setting a precedent in our common law system. Courts will now follow Which now you, do, you don't need to be, you don't need to ask the textualists or originalist question anymore. Now you reference a Supreme Court case. Exactly. Um, and I would love to see the civil rights laws overturned. And it's not unusual for a judge or a justice when writing something like that to to include a note basically saying, hey, I don't think this is how you guys, meaning the legislator, legislature, wanted it to go. So why don't you go back and maybe re... Maybe, you, you have the authority to change the statute, so go ahead and do it if you want. Exactly. I'm reading through the lens, through my lens, judicial lens. I'm reading a law that everybody can read. Right. And this is what it looks like. And so, you know, I, I don't, um, I, I agree. I think Gorsuch's understanding, of, you know, interpretation of that's pretty wooden and, and kind of, uh, uh, maybe over beholden to the textualists, pure textualists sure. interpretation. Um, he does include that kind of caveat, which he is does. basically the. I think he's like daring and, them to change it. Yeah, go he's ahead like, and this fix is terrible law. <laughs> yeah, right. But I would rather have judges that understand their role and their role is interpretation, even if they don't agree with that interpretation, uh, and then then to have judges that see their role as dual, as twofold, which is interpret and also uh, fix where. You know, right. decide the, what they think would be good exactly. policy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
now if we have a, a, a you know a, a, a political uh, landscape where our lawmaking bodies are completely incapable of making laws and cha- making those changes, maybe utility like the utilitarian approach is to have slightly activist judges that can fix things. But it's very risky. I don't like yeah, it. I don't like, I don't it, like it at all. <laughs> so, so speaking of that, let's move into our main topic because it's it's somewhat related. Uh, so we're talking about religious. Well. When we talked like a week or two ago about doing a podcast, it was about like liberty generally. But I don't know. Are you, did you focus in on thinking about religious liberty in American jurisprudence, well, think, or what would you like? I think to we focus were just on? chatting, and you mentioned you mentioned what seemed to be a uh, uh, an apparent conclusion, which is religious liberty in the United States has has expanded in the last hundred years. Yeah, I think Something liberty like, in general. I, I think it maybe even was in the context of vaccine mandates. So a little over 100 years ago, there was a guy who lost a Supreme Court decision regarding mandatory vaccines for everybody. I don't remember the name of the case. It was not Johnson. It was in like the 19 aughts. Okay. And uh, I think it was actually a a reverend, like a minister, Hmm. refused to get get the smallpox vaccine, I think in Massachusetts, and ended up losing at the Supreme Court. And a couple years ago, when like the whole question with COVID and vaccines came up, I was thinking... I can't imagine uh, just carte blanche. Everybody in New York State has to get vaccinated. It, it's like if that passed, mm-hmm. that would surprise me actually sure. itself. But I'd be shocked if that then was upheld in the Supreme Court. It would shock me. Yep. Like I think liberty interests have become so much more protected in the past century in the American justice system mm-hmm. that like that's. It's hard for me to even imagine that law in a crazy state like New York. Because or very quickly, people are like, oh, New York's going to mandate vaccines. And I was like, they might actually. Well, it would surprise and, and, me, and there are creative might. ways to get the job done. Right. I mean, vaccine mandate for, for children in public school. Well, so, so there are, are ways to. Way more likely to pass because they're narrow. Right. And that's one of the things. When, anytime that the government is violating liberty interests, the court's going to say, is there a compelling interest? And is this the narrowest solution? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, even the OSHA thing was struck down, but that was kind of a clever, oh, we're just interested in employee safety, and right. that's the OSHA. So if you work by yourself, then you're not covered, but if you work at a business of like 100 persons or more... Even though so it failed, this, the arguments they made fit into that kind of reason. They were trying, because they knew yeah. there's no way you just pass this blanket, everybody gets the smallpox vaccine, whereas that law was passed mm-hmm. 110 years ago. And it was upheld at the Supreme Court. Like, that would never happen today. Like, we are so much more free in terms of the American, like, jurisprudential outlook. Uh, it's hard to even imagine a law like that getting passed, let alone standing. And so that was my conclusion, yes. Uh, but I'm interested, uh, well, y- well, we you had, lead we had, a little bit. Yeah, what, we, what had, you thinking? we had, I, I walked away from that thing wondering, huh, I, because you, you made the claim, at least in sort of religious liberty and religious freedom has, has grown. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that that'd be a fascinating conversation because my initial intuition, which I just I value but don't trust, sure. <laughs> <laughs> was I think it's more complicated. I think it's more complex than that. And my original, my initial thought was I think like I can reference sort of articulated wins and articulated losses and sort of the religious liberty background in the last hundred years. Um, and my feeling was, I think that's actually uh, a loss. Similar to if you have teenagers and you're like, hey, you know, you guys, 
they hang out with their friends sure. and it's like they're responsible young kids and they have you know they come back when they come back in the evening and they had a nice evening and okay that's all fine um they have an element of freedom but then if you start to be required to make explicit rules and say all right well you know what you've been out too late you need to be back by 11 all right this friend is about it. you can't go out with this friend anymore all right if you're going to drive you need that there are these rules and you know all you start to build out a common law uh framework for your teenagers sure you know social time you could say all right we're going to make a case that they have more freedoms because here are the rules that allow them to do things um, but also you can make the case that they have less freedom because here are the rules that restrict them and I and my intuition is well I think the the, the situation where you have I don't have teenagers I have my oldest is five so sure um, you know teenagers in that analogy that you trust and that they make wise decisions and maybe you nudge here and there but there's not like a rule book with two sides a ledger with you know can and can't do um, there's more freedom capital F kind of freedom in the previous situation than in the sort of codified situation right, let's, you know let's, I mean? uh, let's i'm following your analogy but let's let's, let's apply it to the past hundred years yeah so like uh, uh well let's go back further yeah so establishment clause free exercise constitutional let help me understand um <coughs> here's here's one question i have for you sure what turned the what what was the shift in whether it was constitutional understanding or, or otherwise, in that, um, if it's the case, we have more Americans in general have broader, more... Okay, I, I have the answer. I, and, what, what was the... You know, what shifted that? Incorporation. Incorporation. So, incorporation. So I haven't actually studied this yet in law school. Dude, I took con law last fall. Uh-huh. And I was so excited because I love look, like considering questions about liberty and... Turns out it was an entire course just looking at like the three branches of government and it, like we studied the Constitution but not the Bill of Rights and it was I, it was I started a great in class. two weeks yes yes so now you know ahead of time I enjoyed the class but I, I would have appreciated this ahead of time and mm-hmm. you now have this you have the benefit I'm warning you of the classes that I got disappointed in so that you don't get disappointed the same way <laughs> it's helpful um, I was expect I was like when are we going to get to free speech and like the establishment mm-hmm. clause and free exercise and you know uh, Fourth Amendment privacy sure. and unwarranted searches and like that stuff is what I get really excited about I'm hoping that's con law too I haven't taken it yet oh we might be able to take it together in the spring okay yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. Because I didn't get in last spring, and they don't offer it this fall. So, like, anywho, you'll be looking mostly at questions of the three branches. You do get into the Commerce Clause, which becomes pretty fascinating. And that's actually a troubling spot when it comes to freedom. Okay. Is the Commerce Clause has become read so expansively. The government, dude, there was a case. I, I'm blanking on the name of it. It starts with an R. It was some mar- people growing marijuana for their personal use in their mm-hmm. backyard in California. And they, they got in trouble for it with the feds. And it was ruled that the feds could actually regulate this because by them growing their own marijuana, they're not buying marijuana the, from the market, the which yeah. impacts interstate commerce. Even though marijuana was at the time, and I think still is, federally illegal in all the states, the government was arguing they could go after these people for growing their own weed 
because they didn't buy it on the market, the black market, which mm -hmm. impacts interstate commerce. Like that is insane to me. And that's how the feds also go after things like raw milk and stuff like that, is they say we can regulate, even if you're like drinking from your neighbor's cow, yep. because well, you're not buying at the grocery store now, that's impacting, so that's insane. Right. Like, so there have been some, that could be covered in con law, and there are some like massively troubling things about. That interpretation reminds me of yeah. the Gorsuch's Bostock analysis. It, it, yes, takes, it, it takes a series of individually, individually logical steps, and then you compare the starting point and the end point, and you think, wait, how, how did you actually logically, how did you get there? I, I agree with that, except I think Gorsuch was logical and this is not, and Gorsuch would land on the opposite side sure. of this. Like, <laughs> like sure. Gorsuch would strike all these down in a heartbeat. Mm. Uh, the, the guy is, yeah, he's really good on actually being literal to the Constitution, which right. is a massively liberty, pro-liberty document. But, um, where was so I, I guess going the Commerce that? Clause, is, oh. it, is, it, is it understood to be the legal Commerce Clause or the legal and illegal Commerce Clause? It, it's <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. But, um, so, so incorporation. So here's the thing. The, the Bill of Rights initially only applied against the federal government. Right. So that it ensured rights for individuals and rights for states against the feds. So like your right to free speech was vis-a-vis -vis the federal government. Yes. Um, not it was a, it was a, it was a federal, government. it was a restriction of Correct. the federal government. So for example, even the first amendment, there's the establishment clause. Congress shall right. make no law it establishing religion. The national government right. cannot establish a, an official church. Virginia had the Anglican church as the state church until yeah. into the 1800s. I think Connecticut, the, the congregation, some congregational church. Mm -hmm. There were a few states that had state churches. In fact, um, I, I was glancing through big like Supreme Court cases regarding religious liberty, and one of them was uh, a law in, dude, this is insane, 1978, there was a law in Tennessee that prohibited clergymen from holding public office. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Congress or the Supreme Court struck it down as like, this is like, but, but how did that come to be? Mm -hmm. Why did things change in the past century? The answer is incorporation. So what happened was these, these rights, super pro-liberty <laughs> rights that you see in the Bill of Rights only applied versus the federal government. But following the Civil War with the 14th Amendment, mm -hmm. the, the 14th Amendment included that no state could deprive a U.S. citizen of right, liberty or property without due process of law. And the question is, what is the liberty of U.S. citizens? And over the past century, as recently, by the way, as last year with Bruin, the Supreme Court is incorporating aspects of the Bill of Rights as the liberty that states cannot deprive their citizens of. Mm -hmm. And so what happened, uh, actually, I can't remember exactly when, but maybe about a century ago, is when incorporation of the First Amendment began. And so it was in the 40s. So, for example, just a few years ago, CFC was involved in a legal conflict with the village of Canton. They were prohibiting us from worshiping in our building. A hundred years ago, I think Canton would have won. But now we have this liberty that says like, yo, we have the right to freely exercise a religion. We own this building. We're not using it for some sort of inappropriate or out of context activity. People can gather here. If people can gather to watch football and eat chicken wings, people right. can gather here to worship Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's a first amendment right that a hundred years ago, I'm not sure the Supreme Court would have affirmed. Mm -hmm. But now it's like black and white. It's so obvious. It was ridiculous. People in, like the trustees. Can't they may have affirmed that. it if you were arguing about whether your state, whether the state had under the state constitution. Correct. They would have stepped in and they could have made that decision. Very few people have. You maybe have. 
very few people have, but you might be not one of them read the New York state constitution. And it actually does have pretty robust religious liberty protections. So yeah, certainly more states were on the face, more explicitly protective right. than the federal constitution. So certainly some states already have those in place, but yeah, in terms of the federal and so like Supreme court jurisprudence, that's been incorporated through the 14th amendment just in the past century. And mm-hmm. so all of these decisions start popping up. It suddenly up. became the federal juris- federal jurisdiction. Right. Uh, to protect citizens against deprivations by their states. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I started looking through just like a list of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, I would say one in, in, the 18, in 1879, there was a law banning polygamy that was upheld uh, against a Mormon who was involved in plural man- marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be like probably one of the early losses for religious liberty. To be clear, I'm not a proponent of polygamy. I just think if somebody sincerely believes that and like, well, this could be, this gets into the question of uh, like how much should the government enforce good things? Because I don't think right. this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But like when the state starts deciding whether right. your religious conviction should be legal. Right. Your libertarian leadings would pull the government out of discussion of marriage probably almost entirely, right? A hundred, actually, yes. So a number of the decisions in the mid-20th century that are traditionally considered bad for religious liberty mm-hmm. all turn around public schools. It's, yep. it's the it's state, prayer. It's the state it's, paying for busing to private schools. It's yep. prayer in public schools. It's Bible right. in public school. It's what teachers and can say in public cases gave us the, 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 standard, the standard tests that we now that sort of like the lemon test right lemon yep which is Kurtzman or secular intent was it secular outcome test and excessive entanglement it's not very often used anymore i think it may have actually been referenced in one of the cases in the past couple of years but in the 90s the lemon test was like what every religious liberty case like turned on and i feel like now it's uh, I listened to one podcast that talks about cases like Lemon, and I would probably call them zombie precedent, meaning they haven't been overturned, but they're almost never used anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, what is this? I made some notes. What is this? Is the standard? Oh, yeah, right. No, it's evolved away from the find it. the sort of neutrality. Yeah. Um, so, so Lemon. The, oh, to no no endorsement is so. So, the, real quick on Lemon. So, this is 1971, and what it was was in Pennsylvania, there was a law where. This, the state would reimburse private religious schools for salaries, textbooks, etc. And the Supreme Court decided in an 8-0 decision that this violated the Establishment Clause. And the three-pronged test was, must have a primarily secular purpose. Uh, its principal effect neither aids nor inhibits religion, so kind of neutral in impact. And then thirdly, the government and religion are not excessively entangled. Um, and it, like, yeah, in the 90s when I was a little kid, Again, lemon test was like everybody's talking about it. I really have barely heard it referenced in the past like couple decades. So I have a question for you. Uh, What is the definition of? And there is there. I don't think there's one. I think it's an interesting conversation. The definition of the word religion or religious. Um, We we could start in sort of First Amendment and move forward, but right. um, I would argue that. The definition, our our understanding, our sort of national understanding of that word and idea, as it's changed, has also been very important to this to this shift. Okay. So, how would you define religion or or religion in this in this context? 
I mean, I would tend to define it pretty broadly. Okay. Uh, someone's like, <laughs> in, in, in a pretty traditional way, yeah. uh, belief in God, moral compass, things like that. Like, I'm not sure. How would you define it? What are, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it as broad? I would think broadly, you could say it's a set of uh, closely held values. And then more specifically, as you could get, then you introduce some sort of divine I was say, or I would not. include some sort of divine. I um, guess, does religious include a, um, uh, a, 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 a practicing atheist or agnostic? Uh, in like a colloquial, people talk, talk about like wokeism as a religion, etc. I think there's, it's a very valid analogy, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't actually call it a religion because there isn't a, a, a central divine components um because essentially culture i would define culture as a shared set of values beliefs and practices Mm -hmm. and all a religion is is a culture that people share with some sort of basis in the divine higher power I'm, i'm not sure how you want to describe that whether it's hinduism or buddhism or mormonism or like those are all religious cultures and then you have a culture that can be broader where people might share a culture even though they're parts of different religions. For example, sometimes people use the term Judeo-Christian. I actually referenced that in the podcast a year and a half ago. And I've heard some Christians kind of like be like, why is like America is founded on Christian ideas, not Judeo? Like, why is this Jewish thing? And I'm like, the point isn't about Jewish or Christian. It's about this, there's this like broader culture that Judeo-Christians hold, even right. people who don't believe in God. If they kind of hold the framework that you get from natural law you mm-hmm. could say they like thomas jefferson was not a christian he might have been a deist i don't even know he was a confusing person but he certainly had a judeo-christian culture mm-hmm. um i don't know if he was religious though but he had that culture and so i'd be careful not to although culture and religion are in some he did ways edit synonymous, his own version of the bible he did although so culture and religion lower, are, are lowercase are religious <laughs> sure but it's more like his culture yes and, and that's why i would so people use the word religion uh loosely today in a almost to try to like make a point um you know to use the word heretic like oh if you don't subscribe to blm you're a heretic and i get that the metaphors and I, that can be useful but i wouldn't actually talk about that as a religion mm-hmm. uh yeah but to to the history though in the past century the reason you asked like what's changed mm-hmm. like why has thing have things changed in the past century and it was incorporation yep. so it's the supreme court repeatedly it's now their job to apply the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights to states. Right. In and so like, the realm of religious liberty. Right. So the situation with this building here in Canton, mm-hmm. but also this law in the 1970s, dude, Tennessee, not mm-hmm. exactly some sort of atheist like state, had a law that barred clergymen from holding public office. Right. Now, so the, I, 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 I was, I'm, you know, I, I heard, I read about that case and, right. um, or that, that law and the concept that sort of undergirds that idea is the sort of uh, uh, is a very is a very Jeffersonian concept it's sort of the dual the dual kingdom idea right I mean it goes back to Martin Luther it's the separation of church and state it is the yeah right but and it he turns out so he didn't coin that that term um, uh, oh goodness what's his name um, William Russell the the founder of Rhode Island he he Previously, he coined the separation of church and state term. Ro- Roger um, Williams. Roger Williams. Yeah. Okay. Nice. nice. Uh, 
But yes, right. The sort of formal separation, not the... And as, I'm, as I've been learning about this processing, the, the separation of church and state wasn't an affirmative statement. It was a descriptive statement. It, was, it wasn't build a wall of separation. It was a, a, an acknowledgement that there is a wall of separation between sort of the temporal and the quote-unquote eternal, right. or the, you know, the, the ethereal world. Um, and... If you take, if you carry that philosophy forward, you get something like the Tennessee law that says, "Hey, if you have someone who's an ordained minister of a faith, they have it's it's kind of a stay in your lane, sure, right mandate, which is they have a mandate to have influence in this area, which at the time, maybe not at the time, but there was a time where those were understood to be kind of not unequal, but commonly respected you know spheres um and it wasn't like a it wasn't a restriction it was more of a an understanding of you have something important to do here right and then there's also civil civil government and to be fair most pastors are not running for public office Right. But the idea that the state determines you can't because you're a pastor mm-hmm. is a massive violation of religious liberty. And that was in the 1970s. Like, things have... It's amazing what kinds of laws were in place and even generally being followed 100 years ago that now, like, we don't even have a box for because liberty has, like, become so much more protected in the past century. Uh, I have a thought, though, on the two lanes, but I need a bathroom break. All right, let's we'll, we'll pause. The word from our sponsor. <laughs> uh, we're back. So, um, oh, the two lanes. So one thought I've had a number of times, because, you know, even in our conversation a year and a half ago, the, at, at some level, basically all laws have some sort of moral component. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how do you do that? And I, I think one of the keys is, A, have really small government. For example, if the government weren't in the schooling business, a lot of these like tricky questions just wouldn't exist. Like prayer in school. um, I don't like the idea of schools that don't have people praying and teaching the Bible in them, but I'm also not a fan of the government taking our money to fund schools where it gets to teach what it wants to teach. Right. Even if what it wants to teach is Christian values, regardless of what the curriculum is. Right. I'm like, just get the government out of that. And you could apply Um, that same thing to institution of marriage. Right. So one solution is just, or, or a faster the solution is to get government small. Right. But you still, so that's the end of our conversation. It's been a great podcast. Right. <laughs> you still end up with a moral component, though. Yes. I think that there should be some kind of separation between church and state, but it's kind of like a one-way membrane or, or one-way glass uh, where the church, I think Christians should influence government vastly. I mean, and, and ideally, like imagine a context where... Everyone in the United States, everybody, 100% were Christian. Certainly, those Christian values should be influenced in government, yeah. but the government still shouldn't be telling so churches what to do. let me ask you a question. That, yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's two directions we need to be concerned about, right? Um, and I think the one-way glass thing is an interesting idea. Thinking about the language, though, so the, the, like the establishment clause, right? Sure. Uh, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So even for all Christians, they shouldn't like require right. that you be a Baptist. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, although that was covered in the Constitution itself. 
the no um, religious test for an, for a, an office. I, they did include that. Correct. And that was incorporated later to the states. That's one of the decisions I found. Right. There's one state that required you to believe in God in order to run for office. And right. that was struck down. Because yeah. it's like, yes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what I think there's an important distinction to talk about, which is influence of uh, re- religion and religious values brought by individuals and influence of an, a religious institution, the church, capital C. Sure. Um, and I think my understanding is at the time of our nation's founding, there was, uh, this is maybe the originalism question, right? It says establishment of religion. Does that mean, does that mean an, an endorsement in the smallest way of a particular set of values, of religious values in something like a school or something like a legislative session or does it mean that the sort of monstrosity of the institution the church whether it's the catholic church or whatever or the anglican church which they really didn't want influencing <laughs> the new kind the new nation well virginia that was the state church right but, but it was complicated different but states yes yeah. but even if even if it's just at the time at the federal level right my read of it is yeah it was very much a it was it was focusing in on uh the institutional side of that. And then the free exercise that dealt with the individual side and sort of the natural in the, the, the individual influence of, of people and cultures, uh, in sort of the, the life of our nation. Right. Sure. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Cause I think that even that's shifted. I think most, most of the time these days, I mean, maybe this is wrong. I, I think the, the healthy fear, I don't mean fear like, Trepidation. I mean, like resistance or carefulness about the the church, the influence, the influence of an institutional church on our government. I think that's waned, not because people care, but less about it because the, there's not really the same kind of institutional power. Correct. Um, what are your thoughts? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have any clear thoughts. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I. Well, uh, so a couple of thoughts, I suppose. I just don't know if this is actually answering what you're asking. I apologize if it's not. Um, the Amongst these decisions uh, in the past century, there were decisions that allowed a city to have a nativity display. Now, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of that. I'd be like, why is the city putting on a... Like, just sell the property now they and allowed a private it. group to it. <laughs> Was that Sotomayor? I just I just read about that case. Mm. I think it's pretty old. So is it, it old as Sotomayor? Uh, Sotomayor? Uh, there have been a number of religious liberty cases in the past decade, though. I just actually didn't get to them in my review for this conversation. Right. I only I'm like mid 20th century. <laughs> uh, but the my point is like that that was uh, that was allowed prayer and legislative sessions is is continued and partly on originalist grounds. Um, It'd be saying like this isn't really establishing a religion and this is something that's been happening for a long time it's yeah it's just it's just government being involved in culture more than a religion right uh what what, what did you read that was o'connor sorry okay oh was that really recently yeah cool. i i just couldn't remember exactly um but the thing is like even when i read that i'm like well i'm, I'm glad that they they grabbed a hold of that like it, it certainly on originalist grounds it should stand but but they also in that case they found it hadn't violated lemon because it was like neutral enough but i was like why is this city doing this i'm just so, a fan of like governments getting out of things so here's like what's that. interesting about i just happened to read about the, the nativity case yesterday yep. 
<laughs> which the, the, the sort of the reasoning for that decision was that it sent no religious message, right? So Mary, Joseph, angels, shepherds, wise men, it was not a meaningful religious message, uh, which, right, you, you could, which I think is, it's just frankly In some ways, it's right? like the city having a Santa Claus display, like, right. whatever, it's, it's part of our cultural backdrop, but it doesn't really, it's not saying you need to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> Correct. I right. think that's a really good test, but that's not the test they applied in the case. I thought they the, applied lemon, didn't they? Uh, no, it, it ended up being more of a uh, no endorsement test, I believe. This is with three minutes of research, so yeah. and I'm sure it's it, going to be great. They definitely applied lemon and it passed, but probably, yeah, because it wasn't... Uh, well, rather than trying to do a ton of research on recording... This leads to a really interesting podcast. <laughs> yes. I don't know. They just ended up reading Supreme Court cases for three hours. <laughs> no, no. It, but yeah. it passed. So, it, but, but my point is, when I read that even, I'm like, why is the city doing... I, I, don't, I don't... I'm a... Right, but that's not the question. ...fan of smaller government. <laughs> right. Why are they putting on a... a yeah. Right. Because I, I think But it, that's not a reality. What's not reality? That's not our reality. Correct. We have city governments that put well, on a parade. And I think it's good that the... the this court found this, and I would even say that this is part of the, on the whole, very solid religious liberty jurisprudence of the past century. Mm -hmm. Like, again, m almost every case that modern Christians would cite as bad religious liberty cases in the past century. By the way, I think Smith was terrible, and that was one that conservatives, that was like the more, quote, conservative jurisprudential outlook on, on the court. On that, like, that was Scalia. Uh, employment division versus Smith was uh, peyote in Native American religious right. observation. Let's go there in just a second. But what I was going to say, most Christians that would briefly look at the past century of religious liberty jurisprudence in the United States would key in on public school decisions as the bad ones. And I'm not actually convinced those are so bad, even though I don't particularly like the decision. Like the solution doesn't seem to be overturn those decisions. The solution mm -hmm. is get the government out of education because at some level good education is always going to involve inculcating values and i think they should be religious values but i'm no more a fan of the u.s inculcating uh you know roman catholic values than i am of them doing islamic values i'm just like why is the united states government funding this in a heartbeat mm -hmm. eliminate the u.s department of education and i would even say state departments over time like let's figure out a way out of this business rather than trying to control what the government's like indoctrinating people with uh but but like scratch public school and schooling related decisions mm -hmm. they're mostly very positive over the past century things like religious tests for public office struck down barring clergy struck down uh things like solicitation there was a lot there were some yes. uh, jehovah witnesses or mormons uh you know this is i think cantwell v connecticut it was like 80 years ago or something but they were had number of misdemeanor charges for soliciting and the supreme court struck down that law saying like you can't stop somebody from sharing their faith like as long as they're not a public nuisance or harassing people sure. but they weren't in this case they're breaking just, other laws then. they're just evangelizing yeah. i'm like amen evangelism is legal and so there were place contexts in the united states where evangelism was illegal 100 years ago and now it's protected like and, and that's what when i say that unless it's in terms of speech Correct. Well, so I have that can be our next. I have caused, of the yeah, topic. I've caused to be very worried about where things go in the next century. But in the past century, I think yes. it's been like, although there are some employment division via Smith is one, 
on the whole, it's been amazingly positive for religious mm-hmm. liberty uh, at the court level. Right. Let's talk about Smith briefly. So Smith, uh, the U.S. government makes like every narcotic illegal, basically. That's another conversation. Um, but in this case, it was some Native Americans using peyote and religious observation peyotes. I think a hallucinogenic. Uh, are you familiar with peyote? I'm not really. I don't know what it does. Not personally. Okay. You haven't smoked any or whatever. I think you smoke peyote. But uh, it's a Native American. You could eat it, I guess. But I think you smoke it. They use this and they ended up getting in trouble. Right. I think they lost their jobs. or I don't It's part the of exact. a traditional religious it is part of their religious Reli- right uh, right yeah. yeah and in employment division versus smith scalia wrote that the main decision and i believe he basically said look if it's a general law of neutral applicability you don't get a religious exception and this law against narcotics was not singling out native americans versus baptists what did he base that on i i think just like hey the government has an interest in not having people do drugs and so they have this interest, and they have this that, general law of neutral square against the free exercise class. Well, that there's a compelling interest here, and the, the thing is, this is what I don't like about it: is I think that in in a case like this, not only should there be a compelling interest generally, but I think when it steps into violating someone's interest. like religious worship, you need to show that there's actually a right. compelling interest in stopping them from right. using peyote in their worship. Right. And, and uh, it, there's, there's got to be an objective and a subjective right. compelling And this interest. is a case, I think you used the phrase, bad facts make bad law. Oh, this is in a pre-podcast Before we recording. So Ben used that phrase, bad facts make bad law. In, in the, I think employment division v. Smith was late 80s or early 90s. And at the time... Most people in America, conservative and progressive, mm-hmm. were very anti-drugs. Right, and so you have if that this came situation. Up today, I'm sure it would have a different outcome. I bet it would for multiple reasons. One is because I think it was bad law, mm-hmm. but two is because those facts are not bad facts anymore. Like mm-hmm. everybody's doing drugs for better, or for worse, mostly for worse. But um, at the time, is like this horrible. These guys are doing drugs. Like we can't right. have this, and so you end up with terrible law. Because everybody agreed what they did was terrible. And that's, I, I, it was too bad. And, and actually, just this year, I think Thomas and maybe another justice like Gorsuch or Alito hinted at being open to overturning Smith, which mm-hmm. I think would be awesome. So tell me more about what you read in this book. Oh, I read a great book just about this whole topic because this this sparked my interest. And so I I I, I found um, I mean I like sped read it. The rise and decline of American religious freedom, Boom. and one of the, the claims um, it was written in fourteen, so little little you know a little while ago, but still relevant. One of the claims uh, of the author is that our sort of status quo today is. Uh, the the goal is to maintain new, neutrality uh, in regard to religious endorsement in government, um, and the author's claim is what that it that that's an impossible goal, or at least an untenable goal. Okay, uh, because and, and and he and he basically says that is the, that is. Uh, Equivalent in practice to maintaining a secular government, right? Um, and then you ask, all right, well, what about uh, secular humanism as a set of values, right? Secular humanism uh, 
is allowed to pass through that that shroud that re that rejects a secular government doesn't reject secular humanism but it would reject a claim made on a tenant of islam or christianity i might define secular as different than this person i don't know if i'd agree with that but the well, way might just be defining secular differently well he makes the point is the definition the founders of the constitution would never even have used the word secular they maybe would have used it in reference to an atheist. You know what I mean? Right. But it wasn't a broad, sort of broad brushstroke term at the time. And right. it wasn't until probably 50, 60, 70 years ago. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that for sure, but it makes sense. You know. Um, but anyway, the idea that we're aiming for some sort of neutrality in government makes sense. Uh, but then you realize, actually, especially in, in, in the scenario where our government's involved in so many things, from education to to something like even child protective services sure right not that that's not a noble area to be involved in and we need to be as a society involved in that um but when a bit. well <laughs> but I, yeah. I don't mean governmentally necessarily i mean uh, as a people right that's sure, sure. a it's an it's a priority yeah but when right when you enter those spheres is there such a thing as neutrality when the goal is values-based right? right education right is to is to in the technical sense to indoctrinate children right i i don't yeah i think i mean education is, is just a failing endeavor right on on the right. uh, attempt now, the to author have a of this book government. doesn't cover that he doesn't right. talk about an expansive government and the fact that this is just asking for it's just asking for trouble right we have to, we have to have these rules we have to have these sort of a a, a militant neutrality um as our goal if we're going to be involved in these in these areas but their values-based goals and so you can't be you can't be neutral it's, it's right. an impossible goal uh so you're adopting some form of va some values system uh and you know there's a lot of writings in the founding fathers about uh sort of I mean, like washington used religious language sure in everything he wrote well he was a christian and that's why i right, say it's a, it's a one-way most of his like one-way glass right most here. of his like public statements or you know his addresses were like he would reference the like the supreme the supreme power right he wouldn't say the god of the bible i mean he maybe in his private writings but when he was sort of the president he spoke in a broad sort of religious way like a right. national religion kind of a thing um it, it really was quite a, inclusive. a bit more of a culture than a religion right and that is so i would actually say that the the u.s government always has been secular and i would just maybe define it a little bit more uh openly than this yes. author yeah and i would say what it is is it's secular as opposed to a married church and state uh -huh. of all of the previous western governments yes. and so the united states experiment really was pretty unique in that uh certainly was i mean i don't think anybody at the time maybe thomas Paine. i think he was an atheist almost nobody at the time though was an atheist or had a box for a, a, the united states not being a, a nation full of people who are at least culturally christian like they didn't even have a box for it but they had yes. a box for a government that was like part of like married to a church mm -hmm. and this idea for a government that was different it kind of stuck in a basic protect liberty, the country mm -hmm. and liberty domain, and it let churches do their things. Right. It, it really it was fulfilled a civil the first government. Timothy two 
pray for kings and emperors and right. all in authority that you might live quiet and peaceable lives yes. and godliness. And also the render unto Caesar is what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, right? right? You have both and so I think there should be that separation. There, there, mm-hmm. To some extent, there has been in the United States all along. It hasn't been perfect. But with a one-way influence. Yeah. Certainly, so, I think ideally everybody in government is Christian. Like, if there are two candidates and they're equal except that one's born again, I'm voting for the born again guy. For example. Yeah. To make a point. This podcast today. Is this a religious or a secular podcast? Uh, I don't even. I mean, <laughs> let's I'm, say I'm it's religious. a secular podcast, right? Let's sure. say it's because this isn't like sponsored by any sort of religious institution. We're not here. We're not preaching the gospel. Or, you know, we're, um, I, 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 mean, I, I would say the terms. podcast in the whole is a religious podcast. Actually, no, no, I, I your really mission for it actually is. Okay. Yes. Bad example. Let's say it wasn't. <laughs> but, but sure, if, I don't if, know, you were, t- if you were covering a, a sports league Take or something. Joe Rogan, for example. Yes. Secular podcast. Very definitely. Right? Yes. I don't think I've ever listened to an entire episode of Joe Rogan. So. I've never finished. <laughs> They're so long. I just listened to an interview this week with Post Malone, but it was like five hours. I did not He's got it. face tattoos? Dude, yeah. Oh, it's like, it's so weird. Tatted everywhere. You know, you would look good with the shaved head and the face tattoo. Mm, I think up? you could pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, my point is, so Joe Rogan, it's a secular podcast. Definitely. It, and I think getting into the definition of secular is probably more useful than getting into the definition of religious where we started. Right. Valid. So okay, in definition of secular, as far as it pertains to Joe Rogan's podcast, um, he has on Hindus and Muslims and, 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 and atheists and Christians. And he has no mission as a podcast to really correct. put forward any particular view. And he, he provides platforms for people of, and ideas. And, and I'm not endorsing Joe Rogan, by the way. This isn't right. I don't, I don't have an endorsement of him. But I think he does a great job. My point he's very is, not Christian. Yeah. He's good at creating a platform. He is. So, but my point is, it, it's a platform that's secular in that it's not representing one of or a subset of these ideas necessarily and he even has his own opinions but that's not the show right he he could even be a christian who starts every episode with a prayer and still have it be a secular dave ramsey correct dave ramsey has a sort of a right you know whereas a christian could also be like hey i'm gonna have this show and have these conversations but for the purpose of trying to point people to jesus that's different for example you're a big fake fan fan. well i'm a growing one i shouldn't say i'm a big one i'm he is the most exciting candidate by far on the field to me yes but i also feel like i don't know but he's hindu it takes me a while i'm still on people yes he's so uh and he brings values that i'm sure he you know were were instilled in him because of his some of his values were instilled in him because of his religious background. Right. Oh, and you mentioned he went to a parochial school. Yeah. Uh, a Catholic a high school. school. Uh, so. Yeah. A, um, a um, Jesuit high school. So, you, and so even though he's Hindu, he probably actually has a bit of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Sure. And, <laughs> and he, he does sound yeah, like Yeah. And he talks about that yeah. as well. Um, but I don't think he, he shouldn't be prohibited from running for office because of that for sure <laughs> yes um because then no one no one would run for office so only at that point only people who fit the term of sort of the capital s secular would be able to which means so here's my question does secular mean uh rid of all references to religious values or language no or does it mean um not particularly beholden to not not sort of not like you said, married to any of those on the basis of their religiousness. Right. And, and I really do think that that one way, one, one way direction makes sense. So again, imagine for a moment, everybody in the United States is Christian. 
It's hard to imagine that, but hey, that'd be awesome. Or Lord fill Jesus in the blank. It. Or, or it doesn't or have to be Christian. Whatever. Yes. But like, say, say they're all Christian. Um, it would, by definition, everybody holding office, all judges, all senators, all governors are all born again Christians. And certainly that should influence the way they think about crime and punishment and the way they think about uh, you know, traffic laws and everything. It's going it's gonna to be come through the filter in a good way of mm-hmm. these are Christians who are thinking about things in a God-honoring bringing these values. I think that's amazing. What would be terrible, even if everybody is Christian, in my mind, it'd be terrible if the, the governments, whether it's town government, city government, state governments, federal government, start saying, oh, this is what you have to believe regarding eschatology. This is what you have to believe regarding baptism. This is what you have to believe regarding... When, when the government starts telling churches or Christians what to do in, in terms of their faith... I think possibly, even in terms of marriage, uh, I would be opposed to it myself, but there's some Christian group that's like, hey, for such and such a hardship reason, we think we're supposed to do polygamy or something. I, I, bet I would actually be very cautious. It's hard to like totally wrap my head around the hypothetical because it's like very different than where we are, we're at. But I'd be cautious about the government being like, you can't. Like, I, I just don't, even if you think it's black and white in scripture, which I'm... For the record, I think that the, that God's design is not polygamy, and mm-hmm. I think you can make a really good case for that in Scripture. I don't know if I'd call it like a hundred percent black and white. I just think it's really convincing. But even a really convincing biblical argument, I also think it's really convincing that it's believers' baptism, not infant baptism. But I'm not a fan of like putting to death people who believe in infant baptism. That's good. <laughs> Which that might sound like I'm just being dramatic right now. In the Middle Ages, people yes. did things like that. They like killed people because they had differences over water baptism. And and our founding fathers were aware of those. They knew their history. Very aware of those. And they, so they created a secular government, which was full of people who are Christians and or at least had a Judeo-Christian worldview. And that saturated everything they did from opening Congress with prayer to, uh, you know... Exactly. Yes. Like it was full of it. And Establishing they even recognized a national day of prayer. this constitution won't even work for people who don't have right. a grounding in like morality from God rather than just like some sort of postmodern blah. Yep. So they recognized this, but they, they also were very careful on the whole. There were some who actually wanted pretty heavy handed government <clears throat> Hamilton, but like on the whole, they were like, we do not want the government stepping into and telling people how to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was wisdom. I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. And that's when I say secular government, that's what I would think is more just like a government that's not trying to tell Christians how to be Christians. Yes. Yeah. I think there'll always be a tension there. Even if we there have a, a, as originally understood in my mind, uh, you know, national government that's concerned around, you know, treaties and national defense and interstate commerce. And that's it. Or whatever, you know, let's, let's bring it right back. back. There's still, val- there's still values-based right. decisions in there. For um, sure. I, being small definitely helps, but like take even defense. What if somebody mm-hmm. is a pacifist? I think they should be allowed to be like, they shouldn't have to help defend the country. Like there, there's a respect you know, for their religion. You know, the sort of dual kingdoms, uh, separation of church and state thing. I, in reading about that, just in prep for this, I read the first time ever, in, the first time I ever remember understanding sort of the, the rationale for Christian fa- pacifism. Oh, yeah? In my mind, it was always like just as simple as turn the other cheek and a response to that command. Don't, you know, don't strike back. Maybe God has the final say. And that's, that was the whole idea. But from what I've been reading, it, it's, it's, more, it's more interesting than that. It's the idea that 
um, you know, there's a temporal kingdom and a eternal kingdom or fill in the blank, you know, godly kingdom. And, right. and they, there are different truths, different, different mechanics of those right. people on that basis wouldn't even run for public office. They wouldn't run for public office. Uh, not because they have a problem with people running for office, but because basically they're like, Hey, uh, that's not my game. Right? right. I have a, I have, I'm on a different level and you know, I just recently watched Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Desmond Doss. He was the seventh day Advent, Adventist, yeah. but the same idea, which is he didn't pick up a rifle because he thought rifles are evil. He didn't pick up a rifle because that's just not the tool that he works with. That wasn't, that's not how he, how he wages war. Right. Um, it's a different, you know, it's, it's a different paradigm. And so I appreciated learning that because it gives me more sort of a deeper understand appreciation yeah. for pacifists. Uh, and it's not just so superficial, like I don't want to get involved in stuff, you know, yeah. um, it's, it actually does come from a, I think a deeper understanding of justice, uh, capital J, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah. just an aside, speaking of, uh, Amish or people who are generally pacifists brought to mind Amish, the, there was a Supreme court case sometime later, later portion of the 20th century that I just read about recently where it was regarding compulsory education and Amish. Amish don't, at least at the time, didn't typically do school past 14 years old, and compulsory education is until 16, mm -hmm. and they were accepted on the grounds of religious freedom. Like, the state had an interest in educated youth, but it wasn't compelling enough to override the religious liberty interests of the Amish community. Interesting. Um, so that was another big uh, thumbs up for religious liberty at the, at the court. Um, yeah, no, I, I think there have been a, a lot of great decisions, and even, even recently, I mean, the current court... Roberts is great on free speech. He's really good on religious liberty. Uh, I came across an article in Gospel Coalition that's, that the headline is the Supreme Court's 15 case winning streak on religious liberty, and that was posted mm -hmm. three years ago. Like it's just been it's been a great. I don't know, it might be called decades. confirmation bias, Jamie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just googled words that 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 said what well, I, I just, wanted. No, no I, I, I know googled, what you mean. I'm uh, just religious liberty jurisprudence. So yeah. this might be helpful yeah. to bifurcate the conversation between. Uh, the sort of establishment clause side and the free exercise clause side. Because I think what you're saying is most of these wins are in the free exercise clause, yep. right? It's the government not being allowed to stop you from exercising your, what, holding your beliefs or taking actions or refusing to take certain actions on the basis of those religious beliefs. Capital R, lowercase r, whatever. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's been wins there. My concern is on the other side of that equation sure. on the establishment clause, which is the, the sort of separation of church and state from the state's point of view, <clears throat> looking at the church, um, and sort of the resistant resistance side of it. I've both culturally jurisprudentially, yeah. I've, I'm seeing the, a, a, a much more complicated, uh, much more concerning future. Give me some examples. Yeah. Well, for example, um, uh, prayer in opening legislative sessions. That's been upheld. It's been upheld with certain restrictions, though. Okay. So specific references to, uh, you know, to. Uh, it has to be. It has to be. It has to be appropriately general. Oh, I don't know. Is that. my understanding. Okay. And this, I th this is something that I think still has some federalists variation right it. it might be different different is, circuits yeah and so uh actually one of the claims in the book i read was 
arguably we're better off. We, we have more freedom when we have federal variation, federalist variation, when we have a patchwork of uh, approaches to this question in time, as culture shifts, as religion shifts, as institutions develop, all these things, we're better off dealing with this on a more local, on a state level or, or smaller. Right, it's one of the winds of federalism. Dealing with the question of religious liberty, it, it, it's, it's more sort of justly, de- justly developed more locally than purely federally, which sure. in general, I like that concept for most things. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? We both, we share uh, that there, opinion. There was one justice who called it the laboratory of democracy. Yeah. I don't remember who is a famous justice, but yeah. Mm-hmm. The, Not the, famous the, enough these, for us to remember. These are laboratories, meaning there's like lots of experiments in yeah. different jurisdictions, different locales. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and, and we reach a, it's, it's, it's kind of the idea of common law. We reach a, you know, a, a, a better outcome overall and we get to learn from developments elsewhere so anyway my point being uh if we my my concern is the the um federalization of the establishment clause uh plus a cultural uh sort of a post-religious culture yeah um will uh will likely result in the secularization of government defining secular as excising any references influence even in the smallest amount sure um or sort of uh, even traditional. I mean, there, we've had situations in states where now it's been upheld in many situations, but removing sort of Ten Commandments right from the the uh, uh, you know the, the, the entrances to courtrooms and things like that. Um, it, not that I'm like if we, yeah if you take the Ten Commandments off the courtroom, it's not like the 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 building will crumble. You know, it's not it's not like that. Um, but my concern is the direction of that. Um, and even, even as much as if we, we, we have, obviously we have a lot of Christian references in our sort of American tradition, but we have references to other religious traditions as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm also concerned about, about sanitizing those from our history and our sort of legal and national tradition so anyway i'm concerned where that side of things is going i think you're right there have been a lot of wins yeah. in the personal exercise um world yep yeah and the so speaking of establishment briefly in in the past uh, it, i it it gets silly at times take the ten commandments on the wall um there were a couple of big cases in the early aughts i feel like in certain contexts the Ten Commandments were permitted, and then others it wasn't. And I don't remember. You'd have to read the cases yeah, to get like. I, I think it depends on how like much the court feels like it's manipulating people sure. versus celebrating history and tradition. Yeah, uh, I, I would need to read the cases. It, it's almost silly though. It, it, it's like, dude, it's the Ten Commandments on the wall. If the judge wants it, like whatever. It, well, to me, it's it's silly. But uh, very quickly, the. Yeah. The uh, office test, though, there, yeah. there was the test of believing in God. There was the test of being a clergyman 
where you were barred if you were a clergyman, you were barred if you didn't believe in God in different states. Right. Those being struck down are establishment cases. Yes. And I, I think those were establishment cases decided in a good way. And, and again, part of the way I, I frame like good way is thinking, imagine we were in a context you don't, you where don't we were mean, all Muslims. You don't mean beneficial to Jamie Sinclair in a good way. Correct. Yes. I mean like good law, mm-hmm. even though maybe I don't like the, the particulars in this case. And like if we were in a context where the majority of Americans were uh, atheists or Muslims or Mormons or who knows what, like can they be like requiring that you can't hold office if you're a Christian? Right. Or And, and so I kind of flip the... When I see something I don't like, I, I flip the flat facts mm-hmm. and decide if I still don't like it, right. type thing. Yep. And that, that kind of helps decide whether it's good law. So I think on a lot of these, although some of them are silly, like the Ten Commandments, because personally, I wouldn't even care if it was a Muslim judge, if they put some text from the Quran on the wall. Like I'm like, I don't like it, but I don't really care. It seems trivial to me, but I, I get the message, and, and I suppose... Like I'm, I'm fine just removing in a, if it might be a context where it's seen as manipulative, I'm like, I just get rid of it. Like it doesn't really, so here, it doesn't here's seem that my, significant to me. That's, that makes sense. Okay. Let's take that to its logical end though. If, if there's a value, if there's a, uh, if there's some vestige of, you know, uh, religious value system, that's like, eh, okay, we can't all agree on it. Let's just get rid of it. Right. If we, if we can't agree, let's cut it out. Sure. The, the problem is with that is okay fine let's remove the 10 commandments what fills the void what what uh on what basis are we sort of basing the point of the 10 commandments being on the courtroom is saying hey our it's a natural law kind of argument like there's a tradition here it's not like we just took the 10 commandments and made that our constitution but there's some influence and right even if it's like secondary tertiary tertiary uh uh, I listened to a podcast you turned me on to advisory opinions yes. where they were talking about the doors and the Supreme Court. Did you read oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the I panels, like one. an eight-panel, <laughs> eight super, yes. super nerdy. They brought like an, an author of the paper in who wrote about each of these like uh, etchings or whatever they are. Or, yeah, um, it's telling stories in the, the doors of the Supreme Court. Yes. Yeah, it's really cool. Like uh, some of them were like Greek mythology. Yeah, and, right. And, and it was... But the, the reality is, do we do we need to remove the whole doors? The references to Greek mythology, that those those that's a religious statement, right? And in that case, the current jurisprudence would let those stand, right? Yep. And it, and they do. To, and they, to be clear, and there. literally the same year, they let some ten commandments displays stand, and some were struck down. And and again, you'd have to read the cases. Sure. The, the determination was like, it's how kind manipulative of is this display? And and there's a difference between co- the the judge uh, trying to coerce a process, sure, which I'm opposed to. Yes. And a judge honoring tradition. I'm a big fan of honoring tradition. I'm not a fan of judges coercing. Mm-hmm. In this case, it seemed kind of silly. I would have to actually read all the details to see how much I agreed with it. But I'm a fan of the government not coercing people. Uh, to believe what they believe. Uh, I'm a fan of that. So, and that was like the basis on which it was decided. I don't know if that makes sense. Like no, I, on the I, doors, it totally stands. Uh, it was, so take something like prayer in schools. Yeah. And this happened. I mean, I was, we were both too young 1962, to, be, I think. To, to be involved in that. But I, re- I remember when I was really young, I was home, a public schooled through elementary and middle school. Uh, and you know, it was a discussion still. It was big amongst Christians in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. 
and not so much recently, uh, bigger fish to fry, I guess. But, (laughs) (laughs) um, anyway, what was I trying to say here? Oh, so with the prayer in schools decision, if the question is, well, we don't want to, I guess we think, okay, well, the outcome was a neutral, as a neutral outcome of saying there's, we're going to not allow, was it public prayer in schools? It was public school and it was, at first it was audible prayer. Yes. Um, it was like and then opening actually, the day with even a, later, a loudspeaker. Possibly like a moment of silence for prayer may have even been struck down too. Right. And I, so the I idea was to create a neutrality or a, a you know, a, a neutral environment where you weren't, dis- you weren't disenfranchising people who didn't ascribe, you weren't coercing them. Right. Right. The, the problem is in a real way saying, all right, well now there's no prayer in schools. You're disenfranchising the people who would be praying in favor of the people who think it's inappropriate. Right, and that's where the solution there is to not have school. To stop, right. <laughs> yes. I get that. I get that. But, but that doesn't answer the, the sort of situational question, um, which is, yes, there's a better solution. Arguably we've talked about if you were to dissolve the public school system, it, it, it couldn't be an overnight, it would be unjust for it to be an overnight change. Sure. Right. To be a process, There's yeah. a reliance factor and you got to do it right. No, it's not, um, anyway, uh, anyway, the, the point being, it's not like, all right, great. Let's just pick neutrality and everyone's happy and everyone is equally served. Um, for example, even the, the prayer in schools, I would think, well, prayer is an important part of sort of a, a ironically, we now have state sponsored uh, mindfulness and meditation in schools. Right. So that's a religious exercise. That is religious prayer. It was interesting. So yeah, at one point, I'm pretty sure moment of silence for prayer for silent prayer was struck down but ironically i think sub- since then moments of silence have been reinstituted so what's the <laughs> on different bases yeah now it's not explicitly for prayer because at the time it was explicitly like we're just of redefining prayer, prayer kind of like we've redefined religion and secular Something like <laughs> well i think this is a good example though of why the state just shouldn't be involved in school is because i don't think you can actually have a good school sure. without uh embracing pretty explicit religious things. True. Whereas imagine, I think you can have a good courtroom setting without a, a specific religious thing. Like yes. you don't need to like, you don't have, I don't think the judge needs to be like a Christian or, or not a clergyman or like, you don't have to have these religious tests to have a good judicial process. But, but at some level, I almost feel like you kind of do to have a good educational one. I, I want my kids, teachers to be Christians. Do you know what I mean? Like, so, well, yeah, you're a, a, any human being who grows up will have a physical and a metaphysical worldview. Sure. You can, it can be, it will be something right. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I am, I want my children to have a, 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 Christian God of the Bible metaphysical worldview. Um, but if they don't have that, they're going to have another one. And it might be, it, it, you know, it might be, uh, one of many, one of many things, but the point is you're going to have something. And I guess, uh, we, if we were to, if our goal were to have a government where there is no, um, where you have to check your metaphysical values at the door, 
uh, I don't think we're better off. But Correct. we also don't Again, want I to... I think there should be church influence of state, just not state influence of church. Well, I, wouldn't, yes. I wouldn't say church influence of state necessarily. I'm open to it. Institutional? <laughs> sure. Okay. I don't care. I, I mean, mean, from I like a lobbying point standpoint? standpoint sure. or? It's just like, yeah, I don't see them as different. Sure. Churches and people, I, I, I don't see as different. But mm. yeah, I'm a big fan of, of the one-way influence. Mm-hmm. But only one way influences certain things. What you can't do is have the Baptists influencing the state to then control the Presbyterians. Or the Muslims influencing the state to control the Catholics. It's, it's like they just influence the state in this like very narrow defense of the United States, defense of liberty context. Um, sure. Yep. Seems difficult to manage that. Uh, it's a lot simpler than what we do right now. <laughs> like, why is it so difficult? Like, think... Like, yeah, it doesn't seem that hard. I, mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not optimistic it'll actually ever happen because humans on the whole like, like power and controlling other people. Sure. Um, and so whether you're talking about Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics or Mormons or Muslims, not only do they want their own liberty, but then they want to ultimately control, like deprive others of liberty. Like that's just the human tendency. Um, look at human history. So this is, so I'm not optimistic about yeah, yeah. this, but it doesn't seem that complicated. The problem is just human nature. Right. So this is a, a <laughs> that little thing. fascinating idea, right? That the, that same book I, I read, the author talks about how is it possible that we can at least partially attribute the sort of American ideal of religious liberty to a, a Christian tradition. And it's also true. Protestant one. Protestant Christian. Yep. It's also true that throughout history, there have been many, 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 you can lose count, occasions, small and large, of, of uh, self-identifying you know, uh, Christians uh, taking, you know, uh, you know, using violence and, and no doubt <clears throat> just bulldozing over people um, on the basis of their of, I mean, of the religion. So completely opposite, n- no respect for religious liberty. How right. is it possible that both of those things, both of those things are true? And, and I think a lot of people think, oh, you're right. No, it's true. People have in the name of Christianity done terrible things. So we can't be part of that conversation. And I, I think a more mature view is uh, similar to like living in a, in a holy way or a righteous way, you know, living righteously, that can be corrupted human nature to legalism. And so sure. just because something, just because you're like, well, there are some really legalistic doesn't you know, mean you shouldn't pursue It doesn't holiness. mean don't pursue holiness. So yes. the same tradition can result in different outcomes, but the argument is, yeah, this is a wrong outcome. That's a, that's a perversion of of a true principle. Right. Uh, and it, it's that idea kind of helped give me a bit of a framework for understanding, okay, how could these things have been so misused right. to such harmful outcomes? I think a couple of keys can help in that pursuit. One is epistemic humility and the other what one... What does epistemic mean? Uh, it, it just means like, I'm not certain I'm right about everything and you're wrong about everything you disagree okay. with me on. Like... I, I recognize uncertainty that. of knowledge, right? Like, Got so it. epistemology is, yeah, the yeah. study of knowing things, knowledge and an epistemic humility is, yeah, you get the gist. Yep. So for example, even in the early American context, there were people who left England, the early pilgrims 
who then relatively quickly were like shunning people from New England, or at least shunning them from like Plymouth well, to Rhode Island or whatever. We forget, <laughs> like, I think we read a lot, we read into the, the motivations of the pilgrims. We jump from they left England for their religious freedom to therefore they founded a, a new culture that honored religious freedom. No, well, not necessarily. <laughs> it's a, a new tyranny. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, there was a difference of opinion among that group, but definitely right. a strong push toward we're going to, if you don't agree on us on these important things, and the, the, the blend between civil right. and religious was. So one is just an epistemic humility where you recognize like, hey, this is what I'm persuaded of. Yeah. But just because you differ doesn't mean like. I'm definitely right. You're definitely wrong. So I think that yes. that kind of humility helps. It also and, helps us have a good and conversation. And that is the, we touched on this in our year and a half ago conversation. I'm remember, remembering now sort of the recent resurgence is probably giving it too much credit, uh, but of um, discussion of uh, uh, theocracy. Yeah. Um, not a fan. <laughs> Same. <laughs> not a fan. Um it, and yeah, that's why I even use the thought experiment of imagine everyone in the United States is saved. Exactly. I still don't want the government deciding theology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there should be a, a respect and epistemic humility about those things. But but also, I think there is in us and Christians. I, I even think this is actually a, a chunk of the Trump in 2016 phenomenon with Christians who supported Trump. There is an instinct like a human instinct to bully mm-hmm. that i just think we need to eschew like it's so you, not so you're, so you're forcing me not to bully i'm encouraging I'm you I'm <laughs> no like and, and it is yeah. what thinking in terms of more like so even take it back to like the massachusetts bay colony or whatever and like yo have some humility and don't just bully people who differ from you. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally get, like, putting somebody out of your church. But again, it was marrying church and state. They're, they're putting people out of the colony because yes. of, like, a doctrinal difference. And it's right. like, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And I, I don't think it's... I, I realize it's very hard because of human nature. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that complicated in terms of ideas right. to generally respect that and kind of principle. And it's tempting if you ha- have a theocratic ten- tendency, which I think humans do yes when you see uh a maybe another country make a decision you're like oh yeah why can't we just make that decision why can't we just just so clean and so efficient uh and it's just because we like it right but it cuts both ways the next day they're like yeah by the way we're going to cut this person's hand off because they did this other thing we don't like and you're like Like, oh i don't love that can we just have only the good (laughs) things that i like and it's like well yeah if if you if you become a you know, if you become Stalin, yeah, you can do only the things you want. You can make the only things you want to happen true. Sure. But you have to kill everybody else. And that's not going to, that's bad. That's bad. Right. Right. We and so agree. like even briefly talking about free speech and then we can wrap up this uh, conversation for today. But like in, with free speech, there is this hate speech. A lot of people want to make hate speech What is illegal. hate speech, Mr. Sinclair? Can you give it's me a definition? speech that I think is hurtful and I don't like it and I, I disagree with it. I have a question. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's say you... Um, Shoot somebody, right? Yep. Let's say you 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 murder them, right? Okay. Two scenarios. Scenario A, you murder this person because you hate them and you hate what they stand for. Okay. The second situation, you murder them just for the heck of it. Which one's more concerning? Which one should be punished more severely? Uh, random random murder. Or murder that's motivated by some some disdain. 
I mean, I would probably generally treat them similarly. If, this is, is going to explain should be treated, a lot. I know, I know, I know. Like, and, and there is a degree of premeditation that is, are you taking criminal law this fall? Yes, you yeah, are. Yeah, I am. Yeah. So there is some consideration of like your, your kind of your mental state and your premeditation regarding murder that can change the seriousness. But yeah, I, I mean, murder is on the whole. Well, if you, murder if you, is you go, if you act. just go out to kill somebody and you end up killing person B versus person C, that's, that, that's, that's premeditated. premeditated. Yep. It doesn't have to be the person, right? Correct. I would just treat those the same. But like, Correct. but back to I was, I was, well, I was yes. trying to make a point about hate speech. Yeah. But, but I, so with hate speech, oh, the problem is like the first amendment is meaningless. And, and I know you know this, but it's, it's, it's sad the number of people who seem to miss this. First amendment protection of free speech is meaningless if it only only protects speech we like like we don't need an amendment protecting speech we approve of and so like hate speech you have to protect speech that you see hideous or offensive onerous yeah. yes in order to have some sort of protection I mean, we could go speech. right into it uh, do you have three more hours we could go into the <laughs> ex- expanding understanding of harm right yes harmful yeah. speech so so here's the the, the good and the bad the good is even the Roberts Court is amazing on free speech. Mm. Uh, even recently, they had one of those really bad facts, but they still came out with good law cases where a dude was like harassing and threatening a woman um, like a ton. Hmm. And they actually came out on his side, even though what he was doing was horrible and possibly things he did were criminal. But the speech, yeah. the actual threats were not ruled to be true threats. So, so a true threat is illegal in the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. But like he was... I'm not going to get into the details because I can't remember it that well. But the point is the court is really good on free speech. However, I do see a mismatch in terms of the, the, the good trajectory on the whole of the court in the past century for personal liberty mm-hmm. from speech to free exercise to even generally things like uh, searches and seizures. Like generally the court's been pretty good. Not always. But like it's, it's been pretty good over the past century. But I see a mismatch in terms of that and like the current cultural trajectory. And that is definitely concerning because mm-hmm. at some point, if the culture keeps heading in the direction it is with uh, like a really bad approach to things like speech and even things like respecting religious liberty, eventually it's going to influence the court just because it changes what people are taught and the atmosphere they're in and who's on the court, etc. Self-preservation is a strong motivator and if someone if if i think we should retain something like religious freedom uh, it's a lot easier i naturally think that because it it benefits me right okay fine and the understanding that you have everybody has a worldview if 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 with a growing cultural trend, which is a post post religious sort of culturally secular trend, there's this there's this I I think incorrect belief that people have, which is oh I'm I don't have you know that doesn't pertain to me I don't mm. many many Americans would say religious the you know the religious freedom is a discriminatory freedom. It only provides it provides a, a limited a protection to a, a limited subset of Americans. Um, you know what I mean by that? Sure. Like it's 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 discriminatory in the bad way, <clears throat> and because 
because you know this person could be one of us sitting at the table is under the impression that they have no i guess i could use the term again metaphysical worldview that that's that's not useful right it's only it's just benefiting it's a it's a vestige of sort of an old religious past and we need to move past that it's it's not a secular principle um that's concerning that's not written into law yet i'm just i'm i'm concerned right, no, it's, it's that, that direction we'll get there yeah, yeah. And it's even, well, I'm curious, uh, your, your take. So I've had a lot of fun interacting with classmates in law school, but at times it's been like very like, oh boy, like these people are all smart and educated and going to be in positions of like power and influence. And many of my classmates just have, I think, basic bad instincts on things like free speech and free religion, free exercise of religion. Like it's, it's. It's definitely like a little troubling. What's been your experience with your cohort? I haven't had as much, I think, organic discussion okay. in my group as you have, I think. Do you guys I've also, talk about like Supreme Court cases on Discord and stuff? I muted some of those okay. channels, so <laughs> that, maybe. That I, I do check it. them once yeah. in a while. Uh, and I, I, just, I think there just hasn't been. I don't know if like the, spark, the sparks haven't been there to yeah. start those conversations. Um, I, I've had some discussion... Um, there are a couple of cases, a couple of discussions around like abortion, for example, yeah. where, yeah, I, I walked away thinking, oh, that wasn't, it wasn't a discussion of abortion. It just touched on it. But the, 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 what I got was, oh, that wasn't a, that was like a freestanding conclusion, right? It wasn't right. a reasoned conclusion. Yes. And it just was, it was sort of like, yeah, obviously we, here we all are. This is, this is what we have, you know. Or this people are missing it. things. And like Sotomayor's dissent in 303 Creative, it's like she didn't read the majority opinion. Right. Like she was, they're talking about not compelling speech. And she's talking about not discriminating against people. Like this isn't a case of discrimination. Right. On this the basis is a case of, of compelled speech. Yeah. Like, and it, she's a Supreme Court justice. And it is, that's definitely troubling. And, and she's not alone. There's a, there are a lot of people like that yeah. in the United States. That's troubling. But uh, I would say even recent SCOTUS jurisprudence, actually recent jurisprudence has been awesome and for liberty and possibly improving. I think Smith might get overturned in the next few years, which is exciting to me. I think Employment Division versus Smith was a bad religious liberty case by Scalia. One of his big mistakes on the whole, he has a pretty good justice. I'm going to go back and read that because yes. I'm here. I just finished a biography of Scalia. Yeah. Um, and... It, it it referenced it, but it didn't go into detail. But like your description of that case seems out of step with his. I you know I can't his remember his precise reasoning, but it, again, I mean, the guy law was the guy was he was an interpreter of law, which yeah. I appreciate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even bef even in his pre court days when he was, um, he was working for the uh, he was working for, uh, the Ford administration. He was a uh, he was assistant. He was assistant assistant attorney general. I can't remember what he was, but uh, yeah, he, he was his job to figure out whether they um, had to uh, relinquish the records to Nixon. Oh, he was and involved he, in that process. He was a part of wow. the whole process. I did yeah. not know that. And he said, basically, re regrettably, legally, yeah, we've got to him. give him the records. And the Supreme Court said no. But that was, you know, he didn't like it. And he was he was kind of raked over the coals because oh he's you know he's in there he's just trying to please the he's he's a Nixon holdover and da 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 and, he, and you know he set out a legal framework and it was like yeah, that 
I'm beholden to this interpretation. Um, so I appreciate that. Good for him. Yeah. Well, on that, let's call it a wrap. Thanks well, for joining. Thanks, Jay. Have a great day. Peace. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll add this, but so, so Smith, your so issue. The peyote case, right? Yeah. The term is neutral law of general, general applicability. If we, if that's the standard, why do we need the free exercise clause of the first amendment at all? Well, you could have the government going after people and being like, are you guys like worshiping with your hands raised? Wouldn't that be illegal on other grounds though? I suppose, well, let's assume that that's the rule. Let's assume the neutral law of general applicability. That is currently law. But let's assume that that's the law already. Let's assume that that's the First Amendment. Why would we need religious freedom? How could you violate religious freedom? Because at some level, every law is for everybody. So as long as you don't have a law that said, like, only Baptists are not allowed to eat spaghetti on Tuesdays. That would obviously (laughs) violate this. But if you just said, like, nobody can have potlucks on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And you're like, dude, a bunch of churches, this is like part of their regular worship practice. Um, But that would. But that that doesn't violate. Not violate Smith. Smith. Um, I, I think if you could show somehow in the history, the record, the legislative record, mm-hmm. that the point of the law was to target. Whereas in Smith, there was like there was the point was not to target. It was just general like anti-narcotic law. So it was a neutral law of general applicability. And so with a compelling interest. With a compelling interest. Was it a third third prong? Well, compelling interest is just interest uh, always part of uh, strict scrutiny. Yep. And and in the case of any sort of violation of religious exercise, it's strict scrutiny is the test. But yeah, so his his test. I was going to mention earlier, and I, I don't again, I don't know if I'll throw this section into the podcast. But some other good decisions in the past century were regarding blue laws. Although blue laws, I, th- I think were upheld. I don't know if they are ever struck down. They were upheld at times, but the they've been statutorily phased out. I was going to say, blue laws are gone now. Which... There was also... There was a... Uh, what, you were going to say something? Oh, no, I'm just... Um, if something is phased out by, you know... The court statute, never needs to rule on it. Yeah. Even if I don't love the outcome, my inclination is not to try to go back in time and change it. You know what I mean? Where if it's a judicial decision, it's like, was well, that... If you don't love it, you could pass a new law. Like, exactly. for example, if, if blue laws were really something I think the government should do, I would advocate for them. You don't think the government should? You don't think we should have civilly? No, <laughs> not at all. I, I, for a couple of reasons. One reason is this: A, I just think the government should stay out of things like this because uh-huh. even if I had the personal conviction not to work on a Sunday. I don't think the government should be, again, that would be the government telling churches what to do or Christians what mm-hmm. to do, how to be Christians, which even if everybody in the United States was a Christian, the government shouldn't tell us how to be Christians. What um, if, what, I'm just going to be the devil's yeah. advocate. What if it isn't a statement of Christianity? What if it is a, it is a, the government generally saying, Hey, we recognize that it is, it is good for people to, to, uh, to rest to, or to, it's, it is healthy for our society to have a day where they can't go buy liquor. It's just a healthy thing. We want to encourage healthy things. Not because the Bible says you right. can't sell booze on Sunday, because it doesn't. It, does, it really does You couldn't make, you know, it's not explicit like sure. that. What, do you, what would you say to that? 
No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. But I'm just. I mean, because that's but, getting into the government, basically being your parent or your your church elder, and deciding like what's healthy and good. And well, what nutrition. if the government says it's good to save for your future, and they create something called social security? Right. I think those are terrible. Plans. You're against that. I am against oh that. But like, say, say even with Sabbath. <laughs> so a one person might feel like, hey, right now I'm in a season with my family where I need to work seven days a week to like make some ends meet. Yeah. And I don't think it's a healthy long term practice but if somebody for a season's working like two jobs maybe you should maybe that's what you need to do this season i'm, I'm not necessarily opposed like i remember uh when i was little one of my friends had leukemia and his dad picked worked a full-time job at a college yeah. and then he also picked up a part-time job at walmart on the weekends uh -huh. to pay the extra fees and fees and trap pay for travel and things like that i'm like yep. Awesome. Like, that's what a dad should do when their kids got cancer and you got to make a few bucks. Like, you work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. It's not a great long-term pattern. The government should not get in the way of that. But furthermore, what if you're Seventh-day Adventist or Jewish and your Sabbath right. is Saturday? So now all of a sudden, blue laws are on Sunday because are, most people are Christians. They are actually establishing to... They're establishing something to the detriment of right. It's both a a mess. It's messing with free exercise and establishment. Yes. But, but then also, uh, there was an interesting converse. Some people sued... For the right to have a Sabbath, meaning like you say you worked for yes the UPS case no the, the post office case the, the post just, office that case just that just through. happened was a recent version of this exactly where basically he got the job on the grounds that he wouldn't have to work on Sundays mm -hmm. they changed, they changed some big he policy had to, yep um, and then he was no longer able to work and the question was in that case did they like give a appropriate accommodation for his religious beliefs right. and and, and was it uh there was an impact uh, i can't remember the terminology but basically did it did it impact the mission of the post office for have one guy right you know and and and, and yeah the court said one, no. one of the things with the uh civil rights act is that there are things like uh i can't remember the term it's like reasonable accommodation like there's yeah. a recognition that a company can't if, if a company's trying to be open on sunday they can't let every employee not work on sunday like they have to have people that work on sunday but what they can't do is hire you under one condition, change things, and then if you're the only one who's like, hey, I really can't do Sundays, not try to accommodate you. Exactly. They do need to try to accommodate you right. reasonably. But th there was an older case where somebody actually like argued that they had a right to work a job. So like, say you wanted to hire them to work at McDonald's on Sunday, they would say like, you have to hire me even though I won't work on Sunday, which is just ridiculous. And that lost for good reason. And so again, these are, I think both, the the absence of blue laws now and the rejection of a right to to have a sabbath mm -hmm. as an employee but also the affirmation that employers i think the civil rights law should be struck down but under the civil rights law employers need to make reasonable accommodation like i think the courts done a pretty good job on the whole with those kinds of things so you don't have a right to a sabbath correct meaning like if, if you're hiring somebody mm -hmm. and you want them to work on sunday they you can prefer you another don't have employee to hire them correct uh wh whereas uh if they have a right not to work on a sabbath like you can't not hire them because of that correct and and that was struck down so you can not hire somebody and so you can even in a job interview be like what days can you work and if you're trying to hire somebody to work your sunday shift you could not hire somebody who's not available i just sunday. i hear echoes of bostock couldn't we so <laughs> but isn't that discriminating discriminating on the basis of religious no it's just practice? saying i'm trying to hire somebody for a sunday but what's the effect if there are two people, Bobby and Susie, right, and one is Seventh Day Adventist and won't work on a Saturday, and you hire Susie, you did you hire based on anything other than 
the effect, the impact of their religious belief. I'm just well, seeing a parallel. Well, is the effect, but the, the effect the, is that they they cannot work on. Right, but I'm a I'm a fan of discrimination being legal. I'm just trying to think about this in in the framework of Gorsuch and Bostock, where the you know, the connection between you know a discrimination against two employees who are I, I don't one, you know one's a male one's a female they're both attracted to a male right. I just for I don't think that was his he didn't give it that explicit but just for our I think he actually did did he yeah okay. he gave that great and so you're discriminating and you say I'm discriminating on the basis of their gender identity their gender identity but you're using sex but you're you but it's just a proxy for sex it, it tracks back sort of logically to sex and therefore right. you are restricted so you take the example in your hypo where you have two employees one says i can't, I can't work, work saturday, on saturday. Somebody because says of my can. religious belief the question is are you actually discriminating them because of when they can work or are you discriminating them against them on the relationship? But why do we get to of, why do we get to make that differentiation in this situation? But we don't get to make the differentiation in the other situation. The well, outcome is because the, the difference is: what if you have two Seventh Day Adventists who apply, and one's like, "Sure, I'll work Saturday." Like you're clearly not actually discriminating because they're Seventh Day Adventists. You're just trying to hire somebody who can work Saturday. Hypotheticals, yes, yes. hypotheticals. That's what law school did you. Oh, All cool, right, cool. are we well, done again? I'll, I'll wrap up the.